Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Last time we were here, we, we made it up to about verse uh, 11, so we're going to start in verse 12. Um, two or three times we'll do comparative studies between the Gospels, between um, Matthew and Luke and John. And um, let's begin by looking at Luke 9, reading verses 12 through 17, and we'll compare that to John. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitudes away, that we may go into the surrounding towns and country, and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, Well, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, and made them all sit down, and then he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and here it is, and looking up into heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the multitude. So they ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftovers of the fragments were taking, taken up from them. Now, as we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, we're going to find, as we turn now to John's Gospel, chapter 6, more information given, uh, some things excluded, some things added. Here in John, the first 14 verses... I'm going to read the same thing again, and please notice what uh, John adds. We read, after these things in verse 1, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, and he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip. Now, Luke doesn't tell us this. He's, he's talking to one disciple, and um, he addresses the question just to Philip, where shall we buy bread that they may eat? And what John tells us, and it's important to um, get from John that we don't get from Luke is why this whole thing is taking place. We read in the next verse, verse six, but this he said to test them. And all of a sudden the feeding of the 5,000 takes on a whole different atmosphere. It wasn't just to satisfy um, the hunger of the 5,000. No, he had this thing all planned out. And Philip is the one, he, he goes right to Philip, says, where, where are we gonna get... Um, money to buy bread to feed all these people. The Lord is addressing the question. But this he said to test him, for he knew himself what he was going to do. He knows exactly what is going to happen next. Uh, But Luke doesn't fill us in on that. Um, Philip answered, well, we have 200 denarii worth of bread. It's not sufficient for them that every one of them may have even a little. And one of his disciples Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, 
Okay, Luke doesn't tell us this. Well, there is this lad who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now here we're going to learn something new again. In Luke's account, it says it was a deserted place. Well, in my mind's eye, I'm thinking wilderness and desert. That's when I read that. That's not the case. Now, when they, there was much grass in the place, so the man sat down and numbered about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, I want you to gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up, filled up 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, and this is not in Luke's gospel, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, how this um, came about, he distributed to the guys, and as they went, they just happened they'd give one out, and then all of a sudden, it was just another one, and another one, and another one. It tells us in the other Gospels, 5,000 men, but then it also says women and children. So there were well over. 5,000, probably closer to 15,000 people, um, anywhere between 12 and 15,000 people that were involved with this. Let's go back to Luke. And the, the, the thing that I want to point out here is it was a test. And um, we have the idea that they were mostly concerned, but this was an object lesson for the disciples. And I think that happens to us on a regular, regular basis. We go through um, what Peter calls trials to test your faith. In other words, you have things that happen to you. The Lord already knows how you're going to respond. The problem is we don't know how we're going to respond. And here, it's directed at one person, Philip. This he said to test him because he knew what he was going to do. Now, tomorrow, you're going to get up, daily routine, things are going on, and uh, the Lord knows exactly what your day is going to hold. You don't. And you could get tested. The question is, how are you going to respond to the test when it comes? Now, I'm going to touch on this, so let's just put that aside for right now. I'm going to bring it up a little bit later because we're going to find out the Jesus that um, a lot of people have this uh, really mild-mannered attitude about the Lord, which is true. The Lord said, come and learn of me. I'm lowly and meekly in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. So we understand that side of it. But I'm going to show you the other side of it tonight, his frustration, especially with the disciples. So let's go back to Luke. We've made it through the... Um, Uh, feeding of the 5,000. In verses 18 to 22, we'll also do a comparative here. It happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, well, who did the crowd say that I am? And so they answered and said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. 
And others say that you're one of the old prophets that has risen again. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you're the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded that they tell no one. Now I'm gonna contrast that tonight because we're last Sunday we were talking about the Good Samaritan. That happens to be a part of our study tonight, so it'll be repetitive. But that's good because as J. Vernon McGee often reminds us, how do we learn? Repetition, repetition, repetition. Did not Paul write in his epistles? I'm not writing you something that you don't already know. I'm writing to remind you what you already know. Good place for an amen. A lot of the stuff you've heard many, many times before. But uh, we're dumb sheep. (laughs) And uh, we need to be reminded over and over again. Well, uh, we read here, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. On this um, comparative, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16 and we'll get into a little doctrine, much more explanation here in uh, uh, chapter 16 where in the first 14 verses... Um, picking it up in verse 13, I'm sorry. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, here we know the location. Um, This is, I've been here many, many times. Uh, This is um, the headwater of the Jordan River. Uh, The Jordan has three main branches that make it the Jordan River by the time it enters into the Sea of Galilee. But the main entrance for the Jordan River is right there on the Golan Heights. It's a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's a place that we always go to and we always have this Bible study. And I like it because it's an A spot. And um, it's actually a very, very beautiful location. So Caesarea Philippi, headwaters of the Jordan, same question. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, other Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But he said, well, who do you say that I am? Now, Matthew is the only one uh, that gives us the account where Peter is the one who responds and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the Lord commends him. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Pete, you've had a divine revelation from heaven. Um, The Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. And then, in verse 18, and I say to you, so now he's talking one-on-one to Peter, that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right, a little sidetrack here. And um, uh, one of the things I like to do, uh, especially on uh, Wednesdays, 
is being able to do a little sidetrack. Um, we're told in the last days there won't be sound doctrine. People won't endure <laughs> a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter Bible study. It's just too much for them, too much to take in. Um, and then living in an age where um, everything is pretty much relevant uh, to what you want to believe. And we're also warned that there'd be false doctrine, especially in this generation. Four times in Matthew 24, the Lord warns about it. All right, uh, in this particular case here, um, I've been to Rome. I've been in St. Peter's Basilica there. And they have a, outside they have a, a, a statue of Peter and he has out in his hands the keys. Why does he have them? Because of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here is the foundational stone to what we call the papacy. And the papacy carries with it the infallibility of the Pope to the point where it can even trump scripture. Now what I said is very important because it's now placing what is supposed to be the lineage of Peter who is supposed to be the first Pope because of this scripture here. Let's see what it really says. In verse 18, Um, when you read this in the Greek, it says, I say to you that you are Peter. Well, Peter is little stone. That's what it means. And upon this rock, we're assuming by reading it in the English that the, the rock here is a reference to Peter. It is not. It is a different Greek word altogether. And, uh, it is a word Petra. And it's, um, like the rock of Gibraltar. So if I would read it just using stone as an example, it would sound like this. You are Peter. You're a little pebble, Peter. But upon this rock, all throughout the scriptures, Jesus Christ, the solid rock I stand, the rock that the church is built upon is not Peter. Scary place for an amen, but I'm going to ask for one anyway. It is not Peter. It is Jesus himself. So what we're reading here. Peter, I'm going to build my church upon my foundation. Remember in Daniel, when it talked about all the kingdoms, it showed Babylon, the Medo-Persian, um, um, Alexander the Great, and the Greek Empire, and then it showed the Roman Empire. And then, as Daniel was interpreting the dream, it says there came this rock, this stone, out of nowhere, and it hit the image and it destroyed all these world kingdoms, and out of the rock came this kingdom that will endure forever and ever and ever. Question, who's the rock? None other than the Lord himself. So what we have here is um, the false doctrine would be um, the papacy. If there's one thing the Lord hated above everything else when you read Revelation 2. Um, he's talking to the church of Philadelphia. 
And he says, um, I have a few things against you. You know, you left your first love. And he reproves them. He says, you got to repent, get back to your first love, or else. But he doesn't leave them hanging on that. He says, but this you have, that you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's two Latin words, Nico and laity. We understand laity, the people. But Nico is order over the people. So what does the Lord hate? He hates a hierarchy that would establish one person or an organization that would have a system of authority. In the case that I'm talking about right now, we're talking about papacy, cardinals, bishops, priests, and right on down the line. You have a structure there. Now, by the time he gets to the church of Pergamos, he rebukes them because he says, that which I hate, you've allowed, to, you've allowed the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to enter in, into the church. Now, unless you think that he's just speaking to Peter here, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this is why it's important to um, study all the gospels. Just turn to page to chapter 18, verse 18, and he says exactly the same thing word for word, but he's not just talking to Peter, he's talking to all of them. Um, He's talking, uh, picking up verse 15 and 16, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And he's talking to the disciples, and in verse 18, assuredly I say to you, to who? Peter only? No. All of them. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's not just um, the, um, Peter. So all that to say this. Um, uh, the current pope is on the fast track to a one world religion. Uh, he's willing to compromise on uh, major Catholic doctrinal issues for the sake of unity. Now the sad part about it is, that's what's happening to to the church in America too. Not gonna be too many churches that are gonna read to you Matthew chapter 18 and openly say, this is about the papacy, establishing a hierarchy, and the Lord hates it. (laughs) Good place for an amen. (laughs) Nonetheless, um, that's what we're up against, and I don't see it getting better. Um, the Lord says these are the beginning of sorrows and we know um, that in this generation we're going to see three things happen we're going to see a one world religion develop we're going to see a one world economic system and we're um, uh, see a one world political system all under the uh, arena and array of, of the antichrist so that's where everything is um, on the fast track. And I better get back to my track or we're not going to make it out of Matthew. (laughs) So let's turn back to Luke. And we've gone through um, Peter's confession. Peter is not mentioned in Luke. Um, Luke's version is much shorter. Let's go on to verses 23 to 26. 
Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Uh, here's one of my most, probably not one of my favorites, but one of the most important verses in the Bible. It says, for what advantage is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself destroys or loses his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and his Father and the holy angels. I thought I'd check my emails before I came down to the study, and one of the titles caught me. It said, the richest 25 cities in America. And I thought, well, I wonder what number one is. But what I had to do is I had to start at 25, 24, (laughs) and I had to go all the way down to what is the richest communities in the United States. Well, I'm surprised um, it happens to be San Jose in California. I don't think even Chicago was, was on the list. But I thought about it, the technology, of course, um, San Francisco was right up there, um, Seattle, uh, Silicon Valley, and all that. And it, it showed the, um, what a person was making and where the money really is at. And um, this is hard for young people to hear. It's not hard for old people that realize they might have three or four years left in their life. They're more open to what I'm about to say than somebody that just graduated from college and they're planning on the rest of their life and how they're gonna make it. And we as parents, do we not wanna see our kids successful? Do not we want to see them make it in this world? Nothing wrong with money. Money is amoral. You can use it for good, you can use it for evil. It says the love of money, that's the problem. So here is um, the Lord laying out the logic of uh, man's desires in this world. And he clearly says, what advantage if you do gain it all? What if you live in San Jose? What if you're the richest person in uh, the Silicon Valley and then you die? What advantage if you gain all of that and then lose your own soul? And uh, for, for American Christians, this is a tough one to deal with because the requirement is you gotta let go of self and your ambitions and as it says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because where your heart is, what's the rest of it? That's where your treasure will be also. So that's a test too, and we're gonna get tested all the time. And um, uh, to me, this is one of the most important um, verses in the Bible because many churches today have um, shied away from uh, pointing out that fact. Uh, You can't take anything with you. Um, Let's leave that, it speaks for itself. we all want to hear someday before the Lord. Every person here is going to stand before the Lord. And what do we want them to say? 
Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What else do we want? Well, we hope there was um, not too much wood, hay, and stubble that got burnt up, but there might be some um, special silver and gold that will be rewards that are eternal. So all that, to put it in a nutshell, is, you know, I was talking to a couple today in the office, and I point to my sign that I always look at every day, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. That's the truth. And um, here the Lord is laying that out. We switch gears big time, and we now... um, are seeing something that didn't happen only but once in the New Testament where the Lord glorifies himself before Peter, James, and John, verse 27. But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. So I believe verse 27 is in reference to verse 28. And would... Taste death till they see the kingdom of God. What are they going to see? Well, the Lord took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. Now, when we go to Israel, there's this high mountain, and they say this is where the Mount of Transfiguration took place. Um, How they know that, I have no idea. Because it it only says in the scriptures that the Lord took them to a high mountain to pray. Doesn't tell us which one. But that doesn't stop the Israeli tour industry from picking one out. <laughs> and as he prayed, the appearance of his face altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Then, behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Now, I have this underlined because it's not in the other gospel accounts. We all heard the story about Moses and Elijah appearing. Luke tells us what they were talking about. Who appeared in his glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So these guys are going to show up again. But as um, we look at verses 27, I'd want to go to, well, let's finish reading it first, and then we'll go to Matthew. Um, verse 32, but Peter and those who were with him were very heavy with sleep. Now Luke is the only one that tells us this. And when they were fully awake, in other words, they were waking up to seeing Jesus and Moses and Elijah, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him, and it happened as they were parting from him, that Peter, so now Luke is telling us that Moses and Elijah are somehow parting from the Lord. It's at this point that Peter speaks up and says, Master, it's good for us to be here, as he's wiping uh, the sleep out of his eyes. Uh, Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. He's waking up from a dead sleep. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, 
hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet, and they told no one in those days any of these things that they had seen. All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. And picking up the same story in verse 1, it says, Now after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, Luke tells us that these guys are zonked out at this time. They were in a heavy sleep. And Matthew only tells us that Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us uh, make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. This is one of um, many examples for those that do not hold to the Trinity or the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Here's this one and in Luke. Here's one case where we have the Father speaking from heaven and we have the Son standing on the mountain. So we have a picture of the Father and the Son. But even more than that, when Jesus was baptized, what did we have? Um, We have John baptizing Jesus, a voice coming down from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And then we have the Holy Spirit descending. We have all three. Some people will say, well, you know, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Well, it's certainly applied all over the place. From Genesis 1 I mean, if you just go to the first chapter of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, Elohim. That's plural for God. Uh, Singular is El, E-L. So in the beginning, it doesn't say in the beginning, God, El, singular. It says in the beginning, Elohim, plural. If you're taking notes, write down verse 26. It says, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. You have the Trinity all the way through to the book of Revelation where we have in Revelation chapter five the son taking the scroll out of the hand of the father before the scrolls are open. And nobody was worthy to take the scroll or even look on it. And uh, the angel said to, to John, don't worry John, weep, don't weep, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the scroll. And so what happens next? The Lord goes up to the Father who is sitting on the throne, takes a scroll out of his hands, and he opens it up. Your point, Dwight? The Trinity is in Genesis. The Trinity is in Revelation. And we just read it right here. For those who have a problem with the Jesus Jesus only. United Pentecostal Church holds to... um, Uh, that particular teaching. All right, uh, verse 
uh, 5, while he was still speaking, behold, the bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell upon their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, rise, don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And when they had come down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, well, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? All of a sudden, they're been raised in Judaism and um, the, I'm going to take you to the last verse of the Old Testament in just a second but it prompts them as they're thinking this through we just saw Moses and Elijah and so they're walking down the hill and, fair question why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first notice what the Lord says then Jesus answered and said to them Elijah truly is coming That means he hasn't come yet. That's future tense. Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. Well, make up your mind. (laughs) Is he coming or has he come? Answer, both. But I say to you, Elijah has come already and they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at the hands of men. Then the disciples understood that he spoke of them of John the Baptist. There's a scripture that tells us that the spirit of Elijah rested on John the Baptist. Turn with me to the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter four, picking it up in verse five. This is what the disciples were thinking as they were coming down the mountain. Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Where did they get that from? Well, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. When? Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. When is the day of the Lord? It's got different names. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called the the tribulation. It's called Daniel's 70th week. It has different titles to it. But it is a time on earth that Jesus said, Matthew 24, there's never been a time like this and there'll never be another time like it again. So here um, is what Jesus was referring to in answering the disciples' question. He says, truly, Elijah is coming. That's what Malachi is saying right here. Uh, When is he coming? Right before the great and terrible day of the Lord, or the tribulation period. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now remember what, what we've been, when, whenever we teach on prophecy, and I try to um, repeat this as often as we can, that you might be reading in one verse, and there can be a gap of time, but it seems like it's directly connected to one thing. I'll give you a real quick example. Um, Zechariah 9, verse 9. It's a prophecy. Behold, your king comes to you lowly, riding on a colt of a foal. That was fulfilled on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode down into Jerusalem. But the very next verse, verse 10, 
It says his kingdom is going to be from sea to sea. And all of a sudden you have a gap of at least 2,000 years between verse 9 and verse 10. Is everybody with me? Okay, same thing here. What we're seeing here is we're talking um, about when Elijah comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, we read that they were talking about a demon of transfiguration about his death. But I think he was also talking about things that they might be doing in the future, Moses and Elijah. Um, when we read, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. When it talks about John the Baptist, it actually says John the Baptist fulfilled this particular scripture. So John the Baptist did have the spirit of Elijah on him, and yet there are two different individuals. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Here, Zechariah, well, we can't do an in-depth study on it, but I'll, I'll, um, I'll quote if you're taking notes and you want to do a little bit more serious Bible study on it. Revelation 11 is at the end of the first three and a half years. Immediately after the rapture of the church, the restraining force uh, will be removed according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 7. We call it the restrainer. I believe the restrainer is a reference to the Holy Spirit living inside the believer. And um, when the rapture takes place, the, the church, it doesn't have much restraining power right now as, as I look around, as we're compromising more and more as days, the days go by. But the Lord always leaves a witness. Can I say that again? The Lord always leaves a witness. The Old Testament was Israel. They failed miserably many, many times. After um, Israel rejected their Messiah, that's why Jesus wept, he said, oh, Israel, how often I wanted to gather you to myself, but you would not. And then the witness, of course, um, over the last 2,000 years was the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. He says, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Don't, let, don't hide your light under a lamp, but let it shine. And confess, as we just read, um, deny yourself. And, and we're living in what we're called the age of grace, the church age. It started at Pentecost. It will end at the rapture. In, in Romans, it tells us um, um, uh, blindness has happened to Israel in part until, in other words, Israel will be blind that Jesus is their Messiah until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So basically, God dealing with Israel stopped. Um, Daniel's 69 weeks was fulfilled. Then we have 2,000 years of the church age. The church age has uh, an ending point. The fullness of the Gentiles implies that there's a certain amount that only the Lord knows that when that last person gets saved, we're out of here. And like I always kiddingly say, if you're the guy that's holding everything up, will you repent and get your life right so we can go home? 
That, there's that one person, when that one person gets saved, we are out of here. The fullness of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Then what? Well, did I not say the Lord always leaves a witness? Are we not that witness? All of a sudden it's been removed. So who's the witness now? Well, it starts out with two of them. How do I know? Revelation 11 says in verse two, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth. That's a prophecy. If you're taking notes, write down Zechariah 4, 2, verses 3, 11, and 14. And it is a prophecy of, of, of who I believe to be Moses and Elijah. Who are they? They are witnesses. God always leaves a witness. So we read, um, if anybody wants to harm them, well, first of all, the length of their uh, prophecy is important here, 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. And Daniel 9, verse 27 says that the Antichrist is gonna make a covenant with the people of Israel a seven-year covenant, but he breaks it right in the middle, and he makes an image of himself, and he demands the world to worship him. Well, what's half a seven? Answer, three and a half. Three and a half, three and a half equals seven. Different ways of saying it. Here, they're saying it's 1,260 days. So these two witnesses have a ministry for three and a half years. If anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies, and anybody who wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now, what powers do these two witnesses have? They have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over water to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, one of the reasons that I believe the Holy Spirit put this in here, gives us the time frame. It tells us it's not gonna rain in the days of their prophecy. How long is that? Answer, three and a half years. Question, and I always throw this out. That's crazy. What do you mean it's not gonna rain for three and a half years? Has that ever happened before? And the answer is, absolutely. Elijah goes to Ahab. He says, it's not gonna rain till I say so. Jesus and James, in James chapter five, says, Elijah was just an ordinary guy, just like you, just like me. But when he prayed, it did not rain for the space of three and a half years. So we learn that not only did Jesus say that, but James also said it, and that's what it's saying right here. Now the reason I believe that the Lord had that whole thing happen in the Old Testament, so that when we read, you know, do you know that most churches do not take the book of Revelation literally, much less seriously? They say, oh, so it's too hard to understand. It's allegorical. It's really, it's really just a battle between light and darkness. No, it's not. Revelation 1 verse 3 says, blessed is he who reads the book for the time of its fulfillment is at hand. And the last thing it says about the book of Revelation is be careful. Don't you dare add one word or take away one word from it. Doesn't sound very allegorical to me. 
Sounds to me like he means what he says and says what he means. Not a good place for an amen. And I, I guess if there's ever, ever been a generation that needs to have their head wrapped around a book, it's the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and a real good understanding of Matthew chapter 24. Another good place for an amen. These, these are the things that are un, unfolding. All right, I said the Lord always leaves a witness. These guys eventually get killed. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the uh, city of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Are you catching that? Where was our Lord crucified? Jerusalem. What is he comparing it to? Sodom and Gomorrah. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead body three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the grave. Do you know that verse nine could only be fulfilled in our lifetime? Uh, We were the first people on Cherry Street in Oshkosh to get a color TV. And all my best friends knew about it. And they were over on Sunday watching the Packers in color. And, um, you know, TVs came out in, what, the 40s, 30s? I know when I was born, uh, Davy Crockett was on. Who else was on? I can't remember all of them. But my point in all this is for the majority of the last 2,000 years, verse 9 is impossible. It's impossible for the whole world to see these guys laying dead in a street for three and a half days. Interesting that um, um, the whole world, all nations, how can all nations see their dead bodies? No, we don't think twice about it. Cable. Let's turn on the BBC for a while, see what's happening there. And um, we have news coverage from around the world all the time. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of the life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell on all who saw them. What was their message, by the way? If they're a witness, what are they witnessing about? What was the conversation about on the Mount of Transfiguration? Could it be, uh, you know guys, I'm gonna have you come back and I'm gonna let you do things that you did in the Old Testament, like not having it rain for three and a half years. Oh, Moses, what did you do among the many plagues? Oh, one of them was turning water into blood. Now, I personally believe that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. I'm 100% sure about Elijah. Why? Because it's the last thing the Old Testament says. I will send you Elisha before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And they have a ministry that lasts for three and a half years. Their message is a resurrection. They're telling the world Jesus came and died. And um, that he was dead for three days. And after three days, God raised him from the dead again. That was their message, right? Now the whole world is watching. They've been dead for three days. After three days, what happens? It's a picture of the gospel. And it's being, I bet you a lot of people are having second thoughts. That's what these guys have been saying 
during the last three and a half years. And now it happened to them. A voice came from heaven, entered them, and um, um, they heard a, a loud voice that says, come up here. Now the reason those words are get my attention is that's the same thing that we read. I'll just flip back to where I believe is a picture of the rapture of the church. Go to Revelation chapter four. Notice that chapters two and three are all in red because that's the church age. But you get to chapter four and it's all black. And we read, after these things, a Greek word, benetanta, after what things? After the church age. Well, how does the church end? With the rapture of the church. After these things, after what things? After the church age, this is John, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. Now turn back to where we just were with the two disciples, um, not disciples, Moses and Elijah. They've been dead for three and a half days and they have a a voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. Hmm, Seems like somebody else ascended up into heaven in a cloud. And their enemies saw them. The whole world saw this translation. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and the earthquake, 7,000 men were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now remember Matthew 24, one of the signs are earthquakes. And this is not the earthquake that we find taking place uh, in, the, in the great bull judgments. This one, however, is it killed 7,000 men uh, in Jerusalem. The second woe is past. Behold, the, the third woe is coming quickly. All right, let's make our way back to Luke. And um, we've made it through verse 36. Verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met them. And suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he's my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and bruises him. It departs from him with great difficulty. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do it. Excuse me, they could not do it. And I'm going to read this slowly because I want it to sink in. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? Now, in my cross-reference here, a more accurate translation, it says, how long do I have to put up with you? Now, be honest when I read that. How many of you think that Jesus would actually ever say that to you? How long do I have to put up with your unbelief? I mean, you say you have faith, so why do you freak out in situations? And I gave you authority to cast this demon out, and I want you to see this side of Jesus. Yes, the Lord is lowly and meek in heart and spirit. 
He's long-suffering, slow to anger. All those are his attributes. But know this, he was fully human at the same time. And he's, he talked to his disciples, and he says, will you guys let this settle in and think on it? The Lord is literally saying, how long do I have to put up with you guys? That doesn't sound very encouraging to me. Nonetheless, he says that, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. I mean, he's frustrated. How many times have you actually thought about Jesus being frustrated? I wonder how many times he gets frustrated with me. But he's not done with me. He's not gonna ever leave me or forsake me. That's that part of the equation. Good place for an amen. But isn't it true that we frustrate him probably all the time? So what's your problem? Where's your faith? I'm here. What are you freaking out about? And I want to point it out because I don't, I don't think it's done enough, that side of it. My, um, in my cross-reference here, a better translation is, how long do I have to put up with, with your unbelief? And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down, convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. I would do a cross-reference, but I want to at least make it through chapter 9, and I see I'm not doing a very good job of that. Verse 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at him, the thing which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. Why do you think he said that? Because as his frustration of them not listening to what he had to say. They were hearers of the word, but not doers. For the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And he's telling them, okay guys, sit up. Sit still, mouth shut, ears open, are you listening? He actually says, let these sink down into your ears. But they did not understand this saying, why? Because this is not their game plan. And I'll prove that in the next couple of verses. Their game plan is to rule and reign with him. And um, they did not understand this saying that was hidden from them so they did not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him, what are you talking about? Then, I mean, this is the very next thing that happens if we do this in a chronological order. Then a dispute rose among them as to which one of them would be the greatest. (laughs) Were they listening? No. What was his frustration with them? They would never, they weren't listening. Um, Even though we're not gonna do chapter 10, I will read the last part of it before we go tonight uh, to compare it to them not, not listening. No, they were arguing. A dispute among, rose among them, who would be the greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thoughts of their heart, you say they weren't doing this in front of the Lord. The other gospel tells us they were doing this on the road. And he said, hey guys, what were you guys talking about back there? Well, he knew full well what they were talking about. Um, they were jockeying for a position. And uh, for the, as far as they were concerned, Jesus is the Messiah, the kingdom is here. What's our part? And then Jesus took a little child and set him by him. And he said, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. 
and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. Then John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. Now, we're not going to get to chapter 10, but we go from 12 to 70. And he's going to give the 70, that would be verses 1 through 16 in chapter 10, the same power, the same authority that he gave his disciples. So much so that when they get back, they're all excited because they say, Lord, we had the ability to cast demons out of people. And the Lord says, don't get all happy clappy about that. But be glad that your name is written in heaven. Yes, you have the power and authority. So we're not gonna get to chapter 10 tonight, but let's finish nine. This is actually a repetition from Sunday as we talked about the Good Samaritan. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face and as they went they entered a village of the Samaritans. Remember before we started our Bible study I said I want to explain who the Samaritans are, how they came to be, and what the average Jew thought about them, all right? And we actually went, this was the first verse that I quoted on Sunday. Um, He entered a a village of Samaria, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah? They still got Elijah in the brain. And he turned and rebuked them. Again, um, these are things that, um, you know, if you've ever been sternly reproved for something, maybe by your father or a good friend, that says, what in the world do you think you're doing? Stop it. (laughs) Don't do that. And that's what he's doing here. He, He rebuked them. And he said, do you not know what manner of spirit you of? That's not me. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. Then he went into another village. Quickly, because my time is pretty much shot. Um, Samaritans, if you weren't here on Sunday, here's uh, the two or three minute version on how they came to be. Saul, first king, 40 years. David, second king, 40 years. Solomon, third king, 40 years. Then there was a split. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, came to power. But Jeroboam, because he wouldn't listen, Rehoboam wouldn't listen to the advice of the older men, but to his young buddies, there was a split. Rehoboam had um, Judah and Benjamin, just two. Jeroboam had the other ten. And what he did so that they would not come to Jerusalem to worship so that he could keep them loyal to him being king of the 10 northern tribes, he made two golden calves. For those of you who are here on Sunday, I took you to those scriptures, we actually read them. One was, one was in Bethel, and one was in Dan. And it says, here's your gods. So 
what happened is God put up with that for about 19 or 20 kings, and then he raised up the Assyrians. The Assyrians came and destroyed in 722 BC the 10 tribes, took them into captivity. But then they sent Syrians back into Israel and they intermarried with Jewish women. And so now we have half Syrian and half Jewish and that's how you get a Samaritan. They were allowed to worship in Jerusalem. I, was, I read this. Their religion said everything happened on Mount Gerizim. We put a picture up on the screen and they say that Noah's Ark landed on Mount Gerizim. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Gerizim. And um, there was one other one that's slipping my mind at this time. And we have the woman at the well who's confused about all this. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with her and she says, what do you think you're doing? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You know we don't talk. What are you talking to me for? Well, they were rejected here in Luke chapter nine. And James and John said, let's just wipe them out. So that's the, the history of um, where the Samaritans came in. Let's finish up our chapter. If you want more about what I just said, just on your way up, out the door, pick up the tape from the Bible study tonight. I only see one hand, two hands, three hands, four hands. Come on, guys. If, okay, for you new pe- people who don't understand what I just said, for years after we had CDs, I would slip of tongue and say, get the tape. We don't have tapes. We haven't had tapes for years. So I say, okay, you can bust me on this one. Anytime I say tape instead of picking up the CD, raise your hand and just go like this. And that means me, we don't do tapes anymore. We do CDs. Verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I've heard prosperity teachers say that if Jesus was alive today, uh, he'd be driving around in a Ferrari. No, seriously. If Jesus was alive today, he would be the one who would be driving a Ferrari. No, he wouldn't. My Bible says he didn't even have a place to call home. Foxes do, birds do, but not Jesus. His ministry, he went from place to place. Goes on to say, then he said to another, follow me. But this one said, well, let me go home and first bury my father. And the Lord said to him, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, Lord, I will go, but first let me go home and bid them farewell. Now, the Lord wasn't saying, don't go to your dad's funeral. What the guy is saying here is, I need to go home and stay with dad until he dies, and then I'll come and follow you. But the Lord was calling him then and there. So that's what what that means. Last verse for tonight, but Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you're um, not too many farmers these days, especially ones that would pull up behind a, a, a mule or whatever, but you can imagine hands to the plow and you want to keep it straight. What happens when you go like this? <laughs> you look back and you, you lose things really quick. 
I want to close the study by having you turn to Luke 10, verses 38, only four verses. The Lord was trying to get it through the thick head of the disciples that they were to listen. They weren't good listeners. He even said, would you let this sink in, what I'm about to say? How much thinking did they do about it? None. They argued about who was gonna be the greatest. Let me show you and we'll end the study this way and how it's supposed to be done. Luke 10, verse 38. Now it happened as they went that they entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to work alone? Therefore, you tell her to come and help me. But Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. I always say, Marsha, Marsha. Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about so many things. But one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And as we leave the Bible study tonight, uh, the most important, I commend you guys for coming out to the Wednesday night study, week after week, and continue to do it, realizing that this is the more important part. Oh, there's other things you could be doing. A lot of jobs that need to get done. Service jobs. And I'll leave you with this thought. The Lord is more interested in you having one-on-one time with him, sitting at his feet in a Bible study than anything else. Well, he wants you to do these other things. Service is important, but service is secondary. Amen? Not too many farmers these days, especially ones that would pull up behind a, a, a mule or whatever, but you can imagine hands to the plow and you want to keep it straight. What happens when you go like this? <laughs> you look back and you, you lose things really quick. I want to close the study by having you turn to Luke 10, verses 38, only four verses. The Lord was trying to get it through the thick head of the disciples that they were to listen. They weren't good listeners. He even said, would you let this sink in, what I'm about to say? How much thinking did they do about it? None. They argued about who was gonna be the greatest. Let me show you and we'll end the study this way and how it's supposed to be done. Luke 10, verse 38. Now it happened as they went that they entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to work alone? Therefore, you tell her to come and help me. But Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. I always say, Marsha, Marsha. Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about so many things, but one thing, is needful. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. And as we leave the Bible study tonight, uh, the most important, I commend you guys for coming out to the Wednesday night study, 
week after week and continue to do it, realizing that this is a more important part. Oh, there's other things you could be doing. A lot of jobs that need to get done. Service jobs. And I'll leave you with this thought. The Lord is more interested in you having one-on-one time with him, sitting at his feet in a Bible study than anything else. Well, he wants you to do these other things. Service is important, but service is secondary. Amen?